All right, we're going to get started. Um, I think I may have done that right, Eric. You might check that. Now, as I mentioned, you know, the Bible certainly makes it clear from Revelation that there is such a thing called the millennium, that there is, and it's described as a thousand years. So we keep seeing this reference in Revelation 20. And um, it's really a question of, you know, where do we put the return of Christ in relation to this thousand year period that is being described here? So the next view is post-millennial, which would locate the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, um, after the millennium. So you have the millennial, you have the millennial age, golden age, thousand years. Um, the beginning of which is unclear. So some post-millennialists believe that there's a literal thousand years and we'll only know that retrospectively. So Jesus comes back and when Jesus returns, then we say, oh, the last thousand years was the millennium. So in other words, we may be in the millennium, we may not be. So that's one view, thousand years. Um, I think probably more common is, is that the millennium is not literal, that it's a figurative reference. It's not meant to be a literal thousand years, but it's a, it's a reference to an age. So certainly the Bible uses numbers in non-literal ways. Um, and, you know, you say, well, aren't we biblical literalists? Don't we take the Bible literally? Yes, we do take the Bible literally, and that means literally taking it the way the Bible meant it to be taken. So when Jesus says, I am the door, we don't believe that Jesus meant that he was a large plank of wood. We understand that literal interpretation includes um, reference images, figures of speech, um, symbol symbols, and apocalyptic literature are laden with these, and that's, that's to be expected, and we're okay with that. It doesn't mean we're not literalist. It means we're literally handling the Bible the way it was intended to be handled in its own context, and allowing the clearer parts of Scripture to inform the less clear parts of Scripture. So you say, well, it says until the thousand years were ended. Thousand years. It just keeps saying thousand years. So surely that means one thousand years. Not 1,001, not 999, that can only mean 1,000 years. Well, as I introduced post-millennialism, um, th this is just a, a consideration as we go to post-millennialism and amillennialism, is can you think of a time in the Bible when a number is used, but it's not intended to be a literal number, but a number is used to reference a vast quantity, you might say. Can you think of, okay? It, what's in another, an example of that? Okay, 70 times seven. And Jesus saying, uh, you know, they're asking him, how many times should you forgive your brother? 70 times seven, is that what, it, 70 times seven, 490? Yeah. So is Jesus creating an allowance that on number 491, you're not obligated to forgive? No. We know that that numeric reference is figurative. Um, can you think of a time when the word 1,000 or 1,000 is used figuratively? 
other than Revelation 20. Just gave, showed my cards. Cattle on a thousand hills. Does he not own the ones on a thousand and one? That's Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Only a thousand hills? Not, not a thousand and one? Um, yeah, yeah, right? So the thousand is a, is, can be used even in the Bible to refer to a period, a, a vast quantity. Um, would we expect... So, so that example which comes from uh, Isaiah, I believe. Yeah, um, that, that example is in prophetic literature. So there are rules governing how we interpret certain literatures, right? You think of this in, in everyday life. If somebody comes to you and says, once upon a time, what kind of story are you expecting? Yeah, fairy tale. But if they say, uh, at 4.35 p.m. this afternoon... While exiting Loop 250, what are you expecting to follow? Uh, something historical, right? Like, you've got, yeah. So we have these unwritten rules of interpretation that we just do automatically. And the Bible in its genres has var various interpretive rules as well. So when we come to Revelation, it's considered apocalyptic literature or prophetic literature. And so we would expect things to be symbolic, and uh, it's not required that they be taken literally. It's not required that we read vivid imagery um, as if we're reading a, a, a census or medical records or um, you know, something like we might see in the Old Testament where they're saying such and such a king reigned for 34 years and then he died. And, you know, and, and it's a historical record. This is prophetic literature. It's filled with imagery and Eric and I were talking so much in, in Revelation, it's like looking at a big painting. It's not like following, uh, it's not like mapping something on your GPS and seeing the route. And you start here and you end here and you can follow the flow and the destination and how it gets there. That's how we might read Paul's letters. But Revelation, prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature, it's like looking at a vast canvas and there's things happening here, and things happening here, and, and all of this means something, and it fits together, and it's making a point, but it's not always linear. So, you know, when we understand this, that that's a hermeneutical principle. That's a way that we approach interpreting the Bible. We're always doing some version of that. And the question is, are we, are we doing that responsibly or ir irresponsibly? So all of that is a long way to say it's not required. I mean, the post-millennialist is, is going to say it's not required that this be a literal thousand years. It can be a figurative uh, millennium, which, you know, they're, they're saying golden age. Now, here's why golden age. Um, it comes back to this question of the serpent. So look at Revelation 20, verse 3. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 2. He sees a dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So we talked about when is the millennium. Well, here's another huge question is, uh, in what sense is Satan bound? How, wh what does that mean that Satan is bound for a thousand years, whether it's a literal thousand or whether it's a figurative thousand? Okay, that question aside, what does it mean that he's bound for that time? Um, turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 12. 
Jesus is, Matthew 12, 28, <clears throat> there's a demon-possessed man who is blind and is brought to him. Jesus cast out the demon. And uh, verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Because they were thinking he was casting out demons by the prince of demons. Um, and Jesus said, no, if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, uh, by whom do you, your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So going back to Delane's question about the kingdom. Now, here, here's Jesus talking about the inauguration of the kingdom. Jesus has arrived on the scene. The kingdom has come. The kingdom has come in Christ. It's inaugurated. It's started. It's not brought to fruition. Every knee hasn't bowed yet. But he has arrived, and the kingdom of God has come upon them. And the proof that Jesus gives is the, the fact that he cast out the demon. If I just casted out that demon, Jesus is saying, I'm proving to you that the kingdom of God has come upon you in authority. So what does that mean for Satan? Because Jesus just exercised power over Satan. So let's keep reading. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 29. Or how can, a strong, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Okay, so Jesus is making an analogy. Who is the strong man entering whose house and plundering whose goods? In this analogy. Satan's the... So Jesus is saying that he casted out a demon, and how could he have done that? And he says, well, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Who's binding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what you were saying, Corey? Yeah. So in the analogy, Jesus is the one binding the strong man and plundering his goods. He just casted out the demon. And he said, and, and in so doing, my kingdom has arrived. So Jesus introduces this picture of Satan being bound by Jesus himself with the evidence of the casting out of this demon. Very interesting. When we read in Revelation 20 that Satan is bound. Turn to Luke uh, chapter 10. Now this ministry is being extended to the disciples. Luke 10. Luke 10. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're recognizing, hey, there's some power here. There's, Satan's like is bound, and we're, we're going and exercising power over Satan. And Jesus said, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the main point of that passage is that salvation is the greatest miracle and that's the gift that we're extending to people. So don't miss the point of the passage. But the way Jesus describes it is this picture of Satan's domination just falling to the ground. He's, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now I don't think that that means that that, that happened you know, in the moment that the disciples, you know, did, did it happen when they cast out 
the first demon, the second, the third, when they ran back to Jesus. I mean, I don't think the, the point is to pinpoint when. Jesus is making a reference to say, by my arrival and my power over Satan, and by extending my work through you, disciples, Satan's kingdom is coming down. And in the coming of Jesus, Jesus sees Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And why? Because Jesus has the authority to make him fall. Um, so in this picture, um, there, there is definitely a picture of Satan being restrained in some sense. And it's not entirely future. It's not entirely during the millennium, is it? Because it's happening with the disciples. And then we see it throughout the book of Acts. So the question is, is Satan in some sense bound during the church age? So the post-millennialists would say, yes, Satan is restrained, and, and so would the amillennialists. Satan was bound at the coming of Christ, because in the coming of Christ is the arrival of Christ's kingdom. So does that mean he wasn't bound before Christ came? Well, going back to Steve's question, uh, before Christ came, the gospel was going out to the nations, but in a very limited sense, wasn't it? The power of the enemy over the nations was vast and extensive. It's only in the coming of Christ and the dispensing of the Holy Spirit to the church that now the gospel is going to spread through all believers. The presence of God isn't just contained to the Holy of Holies in a temple in a particular place in Jerusalem. Now, every believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. People don't come to the temple to encounter God. God comes to them through the church. And so, the, the power of the gospel is spread throughout the earth. This gospel will be preached to every nation and then the end will come. Um, big verse for post-millennialists. Um, why? Because Satan is bound. He was bound at the coming of Christ. He was, you know, the death and resurrection in particular, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Satan's activity in the world is restricted by Jesus. He is, he is bound. He's on a leash. Now, no, nobody is being uh, taking a utopian view of this as though, you know, they're denying satanic activity. It's not that, that at all. I mean, we see in the book of Acts, uh, satanic activity continuing and the church exercising power over the demonic in the book of Acts. Um, Paul himself said, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So a pre-mill person would say, it sure doesn't sound like Satan's bound. Uh, sounds like he's alive and active. Um, have you traveled to a third world country? Have you seen demon-possessed people? Have you, you know, it, the world we're living in and how evil it's getting sure doesn't seem like Satan is bound. It seems like he is having a field day around here. So that's what the premillennialists would say. And the, the post and the amill would say, oh, he is, but he is always on a leash. He only goes as far as God allows him. There's nothing that he does that's outside of God's control. He is bound in that sense. His, his binding is not unqualified limitation on all satanic activity. It's, it's a qualified, controlled limitation on what God allows Satan to actually do, which is to say he does allow him to do some things. So Satan is alive and active in the earth today. No doubt there. But in terms of the propagation of the gospel, his activity is bound by Jesus. 
and when Jesus decides it's time for somebody to get saved, ain't no Satan going to stop him. It's happening because Satan is bound. He is not going to be able to resist the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit in the unbeliever's life. He is bound, and when God determines to save someone, they're getting saved um, because the power of Satan has been bound by Jesus, and the gospel goes forth, and the church goes forth. So th those are some foundational ideas um, for post-mill as well as for amill. And we're going to spend some more time tomorrow um, on amill, but tonight I'm going to do, do post-mill real quick. So post-mill, I guess I could have left my timeline up here. Post-mill, um, you know, believes that God's redemptive plan that began in the beginning, um, it, it, was, it was bad and it had periods of up and down and it got worse. And then, but all along, it's, it's re God is revealing his redemptive plan through the prophets and priests and kings and sacrificial system. And God's speaking through the prophets in more pronounced ways, even more than he spoke through Moses. So just think chronologically. I mean, in, in Exodus, God is speaking through a burning bush. But in, in Isaiah, I will put my words in your mouth. In, in Jeremiah, your words will be, my words will be in your mouth as fire and the people the wood it consumes. There's a greater revelation of God at a later stage of redemptive history. Well, of course, this continues in a really pronounced way with the coming of Christ who is the embodiment of, who is God, who is God in the flesh, um, revealing truth to the world and the canonization of Scripture and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And now this ratchets up, and over time, um, the church just grows, and God's redemptive plan just continues to increase. And as the church grows and uh, it expands throughout the earth, its influence on the earth becomes stronger and stronger and more pronounced. Until eventually, over time, uh, Christians take over uh, government and education and art and finances and agriculture. And the world just proliferates and flourishes because the church expands. It's the, the post mills love the, uh, the image of the, the mustard seed. It starts out small, but it grows into something big. Or the yeast that expands the, the dough, and it just rises, and eventually it just takes over. And so that's why up here we have a golden age. Um, because over time, eventually, it's... They, a post mill would probably take issue with me saying it this way, but it's like Christian global domination. I mean, eventually... The church fills the earth. And when everybody on earth is a Christian, this is, this is the millennium. This is the golden age. That things will just... So the outlook is that things will just get better and better over time. Um, Jonathan Edwards was a, a post-millennialist. Um, this view uh, became particularly popular, going to Jan's question about the history of some of this, in the Industrial Revolution, because in the Industrial Revolution, I mean, you saw tremendous advances in, in every level of society, Western culture, but nonetheless, that's where some of this emerges. Um, so Industrial Revolution, uh, a lot of people jumped on the post-mill bandwagon. They said that the world's becoming a better place. We have all this technology. People are wealthier than ever. Um, everything is growing, everything is just going great um, until the Great War happened, <laughs> World War I. 
And then some people started to question the post-mill view that it's just going to get better from here. And of course, World War II happened. And then a, really, a lot of people jumped off the bandwagon at that point. But in our day, um, we definitely have a resurgence of post-millennialism um, in people like Doug Wilson. Um, he's a very good, very good proponent of this position, a man we love and respect as well. Um, and in this position, uh, I think the views of post-millennialism are a bit more nuanced um, nowadays. So, for instance, here you have preterists. So a lot of the uh, sayings in the Olivet Discourse um, for post-millennialists were fulfilled in 70 AD and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So, um, in other words, most things that a, a pre-mill person would ascribe to the, the millennium or the, the tribulation, all, this, all the, the abomination of desolation sets himself up in the temple, and all of that, a, a, a preterist, a post-mill person will say, that all happened with, um, in the first century, Antiochus Epiphanes and later uh, Titus, uh, you know, and people like that. So many of these prophecies were fulfilled. And even under preterists, you have full preterists, which means it was all fulfilled. And you have uh, partial preterists, which most of it was fulfilled. And there's still a few things that are yet to be fulfilled. But those things will be fulfilled later. Um, so I would love for postmillennialism to be true. So what about you? Wouldn't that be great if the, the church just expands and grows and drives back the forces of sin and evil in the world until eventually it just wipes it out and the kingdom of God is established on earth and, um, and people enjoy the reign of Christ through the church for a thousand years after which um, there's a little releasing so that's what they do at the Revelation 20 where Satan is released because after all he's been bound not for a literal thousand years but for a millennial age so he's been bound at the end of which he's released Gog and Magog, he gathers people, Battle of Armageddon, um, he thinks he's going to win, Jesus overthrows him, uh, second coming, because the second coming is after the millennium, post-millennium, and once, the second, once Jesus comes back, sin and Satan and unbelievers are thrown into the pit of hell, um, the final judgment happens, and that ushers in the final state, um, new heavens and new earth, not New Hampshire and New England. Or Nebraska, what is it? yeah, New Hampshire, Nebraska. Uh, new heavens and new earth is what that means. So that's um, post-mill in a nutshell. And uh, yeah, I think that's probably all I'm going to say on that. So any questions on that view? So that oh, that this, this view says we are in... The millennial age right yeah, now? Yeah, we're in the millennial age now. Yeah, Pr that probably, probably we're in the millennial age. Um, because if, if it is a literal millennium, then um, it may not start until the glory of God fills the entire earth and Christians take over. Um, that would usher in a, a literal millennium. But some post-millennialists believe that the millennium is figurative and that we're presently in it. And once the gospel goes forth and there are representatives from every tribe, language, nation who are saved, that brings the end 
of the millennium and, the, and thus the second coming of Christ. So what Jesus in this view is waiting for, um, which, and I, I agree with this, um, the, the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he hasn't saved everyone that he's determined to save. And as soon as he saves the very last one, it's over. Curtain closes. And so um, Post Mill is, is seeing that as something that, that is going to happen. Um, so, yep, does that answer that? Good question. Yes, uh, yep, you have the mic? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I would say that in defense of the post-millennial, um, coming from a pre-mill background, um, what I enjoy about this position is the fact that coming from the pre-mill position, we were, we were like expecting a rapture. This right. is just me speaking. And so we don't have much time left. And, but, but looking at, in defense of the post-millennial, it's like when I, when I see this and hear you speaking, there's a lot, there, there's much more time uh, left and we need to be evangelistic in, in our efforts to see people saved because God's not done saving people. So yeah. I, I enjoy this. Yeah. In other words, it's, it's the old saying goes is, coming from the, the pre-mill background is the, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, so what's the point? Yeah. But with this view, no, people are out there and they need to be saved, get to work. Right. So, so I, you, you bring up a good point that's worth making, uh, which is it comes back to where we started this discussion, which is in which sense is Satan bound? So if Satan is not bound, then as you said, what's the point? Now, in defense of the premillennialist, they would not agree with that assessment. They would say, I can give you 10 points why you need to get to work evangelistically. But point being is Satan is not bound yet. And so there's only so much we can do. And, and if, it's a, if it's a strong dispensational position, which by the way, MacArthur calls himself a leaky dispensationalist, which means he's not a strong dispensationalist. Um, and and there's some more nuance that I very much appreciate that he has to the dispensational position. But a strong dispensationalist is, is, um, is going to see the redemptive activity of God in the church as a parenthetical, salvific work for the purpose of, of, of drawing Israel back to himself. And so um, in that sense, that's our function. And so if we're going to put time and effort, it needs to be in the direction of the restoration of, of Israel. Um, th that would be some expressions of that, um, which we have that in West Texas, um, people who are really strong proponents of that view. Um, yep, just, just tune your TV antenna and pick up some of those TV stations, and you'll, you'll see this view as a, as a huge value, like more so than evangelism of, of all people. Like, we have got to you know, do everything we can to see Israel restored. Um, so, but if Satan is bound, what kind of confidence should that give us to be evangelistic? A lot. Jesus saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. He told that parable about strong man binding, binding the strong man and plundering his house. Um, and then, of course, the, the binding language in Revelation 20 that he's bound and thrown into the pit and sealed up and shut up. Now, the, the pre-mill uh, person 
is going to say, okay, then what do you do with that language? I mean, it, the picture is pretty vivid. He's thrown into a pit. It's covered. It's sealed. It's shut. How can you say that that describes the present evil age? I mean, if Satan is, it just doesn't seem like he's, if it just said he's bound, well, then you can make the argument that he's on a leash. But it doesn't just say that. It says it was, he's thrown into a pit, it's sealed, and it is shut. I mean, the picture is he can't do anything, right? So, you, you know, the pre-mill would say, how can you say that Satan is bound now? Um, so you following so far? I'm playing devil's advocate here. So, yeah, so I, I think the answer to that, I'm glad you asked. I think, the, I think the answer to that is given to us contextually. So what is he bound from doing? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. After that, he'll be released for a little while. So he's bound for a season. And then as soon as he's released, what does he do? He gathers the nations Gog and Magog for the battle of Armageddon for the final overthrow of the lamb on the throne. That's his intention. That's what he's after. So in what sense is he bound? He's bound from doing that. He's not, he's not bound categorically in every sphere of life. It doesn't, the, te- the context doesn't require that interpretation. So he's bound, sealed, and shut. In other words, his, his ultimate determination to gather the nations of the earth against the Lamb, that he's bound from doing that. He's restricted in that sense, um, which is not to say there's no more demon possession or something. It's not on that level. It's, it's on the global scale. Um, and because he's bound in that sense, that has implication on everything else that we do evangelistically and everything else that Satan does demonically. It has implication. Um, but there's no need to um, view the, the, uh, the binding in Revelation 20 as just comprehensive, categorical, without exception. It's a qualified bounding of Satan um, in the amill and post-mill view. Yep. I know that's a nuance in there, and it's, it's kind of like, okay, yeah. I mean, all of the, every position has its problems. And every position, you get to a point where you say, just not sure about that. That's a tough one. They all have that. So just, you know, we should be okay with that. All right, any other questions on post-mill? Okay. All right. Yes, sir. Explain the golden age. Okay. Explain the golden age. This is really depressing. Depressing? In what sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. No, so it's not... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the golden age is, is when, when we finally get to that point where the gospel has gone out and the church has expanded throughout the earth and the glory of the Lord fills the earth um, as the water covers the seas and... And the church is, has taken over and influenced and infiltrated every aspect of society and redeemed everything. And um, there's, you know, redeemed medicine and economics and there's no more poverty and no more 
slavery and no oppression, no evil, because the influence of Christianity has so permeated society that we achieve this golden age, for lack of a better term. Right. According to this view. Correct. Okay. So Thoughts on that? Yeah. <laughs> I, li I like your face on that. So, uh, y yes, sir. And then. I'm a little concerned with people calling it golden age because I think they're taking too much on themselves. It's all Christ. True. Period. Right. And, and any, Paul said there's no good in me other than Christ. And I think we've got to be careful to take any glory at all Good on point. ourselves. Right. I, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Yeah, and, and a, so a post-mill person would agree there that it's not that they got better, that made the earth better, but that the kingdom of God expanded into all spheres of society such that everything gets redeemed and, and made whole. Um, so, you know, I mean, just, just pastorally, um, you, you know, we can think about how this would play out in the life of a believer. Um, you know, so if God's intention is to fill the earth with as many Christians uh, as possible, how is that going to come to bear on how you think about family? How you think about work? How, how, yeah, I mean, you know, it, there's a lot of implications there that we've got to... How you think about politics... So if, if this is where it's headed, that it's just we've got to get more Christians into more aspects of society to drive back evil more and more, then, you know, we need to have, well, um, we need to get as many uh, Christians in public office as possible. Because this is, it's not just that we're trying to be evangelistic, that we're just trying to be a faithful presence in the evil world, that we're just trying to represent Christ. It's, it's all that. But for a post-mill, it's more than that. This is part of the ushering in of the kingdom of God and the influence of Christianity in the earth to drive back the forces of evil. That's why we try to get into political office. We try to, uh, you know, permeate every aspect of society through numbers as much as we possibly can. So that's, that's some of the uh, practical playouts of some of this. Yeah. Well, that's what, just going off of what you just said, to me, that view has a lot of hope in it for what we're doing on the earth. Because you know, I, I find myself just kind of, we're just abiding. You know, we're just hiding out. And we're not really hiding out, but we're living our lives, but we're not, you know, the world's just going hell in hand. <laughs> you know? right. I mean, but that there's hope in this. I don't know if hope is even the right word, because my hope is in Christ. Yeah. But that that there's more for us to do as believers on the earth. Yeah. You know, in our in our daily lives of living out the gospel right. and really influencing culture and so like let's yeah, let's get to work. Let's, there's something to be said about it. Let's all get that. to work. Sure. You know, in our work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all about Christ. Right. But in our work I don't know if hope's the right word because again, my hope is in Christ, but I do find myself kind of hunkering down in bunker right. mentality. You know, again, when right. when people in Congress are testifying and someone asks them, what is a woman? And they say, well, anyone can be a woman. Like, yeah. what, what is, you know, that's yeah. today. That's this day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, so I think that's where, when, when I introduce amillennialism, it's going to, I think, answer some of those desires that are in all of our hearts, that we do see a, a redemption of the various aspects of life and culture in our world. 
Um, so what I would say on the post mill view is that this is what um, is ref it's reflective of an over-realized eschatology. So have you heard that phrase, an over-realized eschatology? Um, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we've, we've mentioned that, I might have a graphic for this. Um, we've mentioned that, well, yeah, not really. Okay, um, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we've mentioned that in, in one sense, um, the kingdom has been inaugurated in Christ. Christ came down, uh, you know, he ascended, the Holy Spirit came down, and the kingdom has begun. And at some point, uh, the kingdom is going, the world is going to end. And so this is the second coming of Christ. But this kingdom extends into the future right? It, it extends into eternal, eternity future. So another way to look at this is that the future kingdom that is coming extended into time and past, and so that there's an overlap. There's um, the present evil age that we currently live in, and that exists at the same time as, whoops, the kingdom of God. So this is the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the beginning of it. This is the consummation of the kingdom of God, the, the fullness of it. And so this is, this is when we talk about the already, not yet. In one sense, the kingdom of God has already arrived. It's been inaugurated. It's been established. But in another sense, we recognize there's still sin and sickness and death in the world and all kinds of bad things. That just goes to show that the kingdom has not arrived in its fullness yet. It hasn't been consummated. So it's already here, but it's not here fully yet. So we talk about already, not yet. And I appreciate a, a pastor and writer, Tom Nelson, who's, who says uh, already, not fully yet. Which I like that. Because how much of the... Um, how much of the, you might call this the age to come, how much of the age to come has broken into the present evil age? And how much of the present evil age has overshadowed and delayed the fullness of the age to come? There's an overlap, right? In one sense, the, the age to come has broken into the present evil age, but there's still a whole lot more to come. So if you want to read a, a great, a classic book on this, is by George, Eld George Eldon Ladd called The Gospel in the Kingdom. Short read, uh, excellent book, explaining the already not yet of inaugurated eschatology. In other words, a view of, of the fact that the age to come has already broken into the present evil age in the person of Christ, and that is the kingdom of God. Um, not here in its fullness yet, but it's, it's been started. It will be in its fullness eventually. Post-mill, <coughs> in my view, is an over-realized eschatology. In other words, it assumes more of the age to come is actually going to break into the present than I think the Bible probably allows. So overly optimistic might be a way we, we say that, whereas maybe a, a premillennial view might be overly pessimistic. Um, now, 
that's just a subjective statement. Um, right? Is that fair to say at this yeah, point? Yeah. <laughs> you have the, yeah. Can you run it on up here, Pastor Billy? And, and I'm going to introduce Amil here in a minute, and then we'll have a whole session on it yeah, tomorrow morning. Yeah. So. so, you know, if to, to bring some objective into mm -hmm. the overly subjective. Um, so what I would ask is, okay, so what does the post-millennial view say to Jesus saying that narrow is the way that leads to life, and few are they that find it, but broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many are they that find that. Um, and then the, the wheat and the tares, they grow up together until the final harvest. Um, so those are, those, are, those are some scriptures that I think need to be, you know, factored in and considering the, the different views. Right. So maybe some, a little bit That's of objective good. kind of a thing to... Right, right. Yeah, good. Anybody else? There is a post-mill answer to that. Though. Okay. That is important. I agree, yeah. Yes, Delaney. Um, so it seems like the post-mill, like most of the good parts of the kingdom are coming before the second coming. And then maybe the Amil is all that's after. Is that right? Well, yeah, Amil, it's different. So we'll get into Amil here in a second. But so um, the I first guess, part of what you're saying, I think, is accurate. Okay, so what would be the scripture proof of the golden age coming or a lot of these things happening before the second coming. Do you have like um, somewhere to go there? Sorry. Yeah. Can y'all see that? Oh, no. Okay. I have a, a graphic with um, some of the scriptures. I'm, I'm looking for it. Just one second. Post mill. Yep. Okay. Here it is. Post-millennialism. So in particular, in Revelation, um, chapters 1 to 3 are the letters to the seven churches, and those apply to the first century churches. Chapters 4 through 19, all the seals, trumpets, witnesses, the women and the dragon, the beast, the bulls, the harlot, Armageddon, all of that happens in history here, culminating with this millennial period or age. So in this graphic, the millennium is, is more at the end as opposed to a, a figurative millennium, but it may still be millennium. It may be 50 years, it may be 2,000 years, but it's at the end. It's a period after this. Um, so modern church ages and all of that. So Revelation 20, 1 through 6 refers to that. And then all of this, the dragon destroyed, all these scriptures um, refer to the second coming, the general resurrection, last judgment, new heavens and new earth. So they just locate all of those scriptures in this framework. Um, so that's how they would handle Revelation 20. And then remember the two preterist views for the Olivet Discourse and all of Jesus' um, predictions and prophecies about the future kingdom and what's going to happen. So all of that gets limited to uh, this period like right here because um, in a preterist view, which not all post-mills are preterist, but I think it's safe to say all preterists are post-mills, um, in a preterist view, then all of that happened at 70 AD and the time just following Jesus. So 
those scriptures get placed there. The revelation and uh, the revelation scriptures get placed in this grid, and it all kind of fits together. Yes, sir. This, uh, in actuality, the semi-preterist view is some of it, and the bulk of it happened before 70 A.D., but there is still stuff to come. Right. That's the, the uh, partial preterist. Yeah, or, or so, semi, however you want yeah. to say it. So the full preterist is it all happened, but partial, some of it is still going to happen um, later, like in this, in this realm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I just want to say, R.C. Sproul is a preterist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, some wonderful, wonderful theologians and men we love and respect hold to all these views. Um, I mean, y'all know I'm a Grudem fanboy, and uh, Grudem is a pre-mill, historic pre-mill. So, um, and, and even Doug Wilson, who's a proponent of this, is, uh, love that man. He's wonderful on, on so many things. So thankful for that. And uh, just, you know, we recognize the, the circle and that it's, there's just some things that, all right, let's, let's just introduce in the next eight minutes, and then we'll be done at nine, um, amillennialism. So under, I'll throw up that graphic. Did we just lose that up there? Okay, let me see. So, under amillennial, um, the millennium is interpreted as a, as a period, as an age, not as a literal millennium. So, ah, the alpha privative is, is a little bit misleading because ah usually means not. So, it's not that we don't believe there's a millennium. It's, it's that we believe the millennium is figurative. Um, so, Satan, in this view is bound, you know, based on the text that we saw a minute ago, uh, at the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection, the sending of the Spirit, um, which, you know, going back to how Satan bound and deceived the nations prior to the coming of Christ, um, Pentecost being an, an image of the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Remember, so at, at Babel, languages are scattered, people are scattered. At Pentecost, people of different languages are gathered and they hear the gospel in their own language and they get saved and a church is formed. It's the great reversal is what's taking place. How, how is that possible? Because Satan is bound, no longer able to deceive the nations, um, which is what his in, intention has been. Um, you know, Revelation 20, verse 3, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So he's bound at the coming of Christ and, and throughout the church age. Now, I've already talked about how that it's not unrestricted, unqualified binding. It's, 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 he's bound in a certain sense. Um, and, that, and that the millennium that's described here is a period of time that we're currently living in. At the end of which, there would be some sort of tribulation. So even our millennials are divided over whether there's a, a literal period of intensification or if the time of the early church until the present day is all tribulation. It's just we're, the last 2,000 years have been tribulation. So that, that's a view as well, and just people land on different things there. At the end of that tribulation, Satan is loosed. Um, uh, an, an analogy might be that the, the leash is let out a little bit further, and he's allowed to wreak more havoc and do more. 
never outside of God's control because he's always bound, but he's loosed and allowed to do more. And, um, and there's an intensification of evil in the earth, after which uh, Christ comes back, Satan and all of his followers are defeated, Everyone rises, everyone is judged, some go to heaven, some go to hell, the final state, new heavens and new earth come. So in this view, you know, uh, no rapture, no seven-year tribulation, no literal millennium, there's not two resurrections, there's not three judgments, there's not all of those things. It's, it's just a simple, Satan's bound when Christ comes, we're living in the millennium, it's going to get worse right towards the end, Jesus comes back, curtain closes, new heavens and new earth. Um, so that's how... That's how amillennialists see that. Now, um, in the in, in where where does some of these views come from? Um, going back to this analogy and borrowing this view of of postmillennialism, an amillennialist sees that look on one hand things have been getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and it's just going to continue to get worse and go down. And at the same time, as the world gets worse and worse and worse over time, the church just gets stronger and brighter and purer. And um, so that's the distinction from post-millennialism is that this doesn't erase this. (laughs) The world still gets way worse. And so we see the intensification. I think that's the allusion to Christians being beheaded for their faith and uh, not taking the mark of the beast, which that's a whole other question, and Antichrist and all of that. So we can, if you have questions about that, we'll have a whole Q&A session the last hour of tomorrow. Which one? Postmillennialism believes that as the church grows, it actually drives back evil. So there, there's not an accommodation. Yeah, amillennialism recognizes that the world no doubt will get worse, and the church, no doubt, will get stronger. So the true church, the true church will, will get strong. So you just think about it in the world today. On the one hand, you know, Revelation talks about disease and pestilence. You know, is, is COVID a fulfillment of that kind of thing? That um, certain things just go out of control on a global scale in the end times. And yet, Look how the church has been purified through COVID. How nominal Christians seem to have fallen off and been exposed as nominal Christians. And God has drawn people into the true church and grown it. And the church is stronger and it's pure. And we've had to think about things that we've never had to think about before. And our faith is, is greater. You think about the, um, the gospel going to all nations in the end times and how easy it is to get the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth nowadays. And, and think about the uh, persecuted church, whether in China or North Korea, Sudan, Nepal, and these places where there's great opposition, blue line, and yet the church is just flourishing. The more you persecute them, the more they grow. Um, see, like that phenomenon has a, a category in an amillennial view. Because on one hand, we recognize, we, we don't have an over-realized eschatology that is somehow hoping that the world's just going to become a better place. It's not going to get evil. But we realize, no, the world's actually going to get evil and the church is actually going to get bigger and holier and purer. 
until eventually Christ comes back when the last person whom he has determined to save gets saved. He's coming back. And he's not going to come back. There's not a secret coming back followed seven years later by a, another public coming back. That would be the dispensational pre-mill view, you know, a rapture followed by a second coming. There's not two returns of Christ. There's one return of Christ in the all-mill view. Um, and so uh, understanding this view, and, and actually Pastor Billy will talk about this tomorrow as he gives kind of a pastoral reflection on, the, on amillennialism, is it, it really affects the way we think about sin, suffering, persecution, our role in the world, our mission, our evangelism, how we engage with work, how we engage with unbelievers. You know, I, I mean, on one hand, I'm the same one who two hours ago said that this is a, like a tertiary issue, and it is. But I, I do think pastorally this, you know, we have assumptions about why we're here and where we're headed. And it's good to identify what those assumptions are and lay them up against what is the clearest teaching of Scripture. And, um, you know, so does the Scripture present a, a view um, that God is, God is just preserving us and we're hanging on and we're, we're going to be faithful and we're going to support each other and then eventually we're going to be rescued out of this mess um, because it's just going to get worse. And so we've got to pull together and come together. Or does it, is there a view that, um, no, we've got to get out there. We've got to change culture. We've got to change music and movies and media and clothing and art and everything else and redeem the whole world because that's what the only thing that's going to bring Jesus back is if we get to work and do all of that. Um, you know, so like kind of what are, what seems to be the most biblically persuasive in your mind? I mean, that's what you, you want to be asking. And I realize I'm caricaturing it in a biased way, admittedly because it's nine o'clock. Um, and we're going to get into it more tomorrow morning. But I, but I do think, I mean, these are important considerations. So in this view, there's a recognition of the worsening of evil over time and the strengthening of the church. Yeah. Yep. Yep. What did you see during World War One? Was oh, the end all wars. These horrible things that were happening. We had Nietzsche. Yeah. And it does, and uh, because there's nothing new under the sun, and so sin just reincarnates itself in a different form, but it, uh, but it always comes back, and it always, it's always the same stuff over and over. And, you know, I think it's challenging in particular to say to um, the persecuted church, you know, that we're, we're, we're living, you know, on the post-mill view, like, we're living in a golden age but at some point you know there's going to be this unleashing of persecution and they're thinking that, that's been the last two decades in my country what are you talking about like it can't get any worse than it is right now uh my relatives are being killed for being a christian what do you like 
So some of these views are, are more influenced by Western thought than we realized and um, Western prosperity. Um, whereas you go to third world countries and places in the East and places around the world that are experiencing genuine revival and the church just growing like crazy in the midst of opposition. And some of these views just kind of start to crumble in my mind because you're like, where the opposition and evil against Christianity is the fiercest, the church is the strongest. Just like, how do you make sense of that? Um, and I, you know, so it just, it creates, I know that's anecdotal, but it's not an insignificant observation, I think. Um, so tomorrow we will come back at nine and we'll do a session on amillennialism. And then we'll do um, a, a session that Pastor Billy's gonna do um, talking about just the pastoral implications of the Amil view and how that comes to bear on just how we read our Bibles, how we interpret scripture. And then we'll, we'll have the final, the goal is to have the final hour to just interact and have questions and answers. So if tonight you have questions in your head or as you wake up in the morning, you think about things, just write it down. And um, we're going to have a time of just extended Q&A where you can interact with some of these and, and ask some questions. So I want you to you know, write that down, be prepared for that, because we'd love to serve you that way if you have questions. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this time, and um, it is exciting to just think about and what you're, what you're doing, what your word teaches, and uh, Lord, we want to be, we want to come in line with it all, and Lord, I know even in this room, there's going to be different positions that people land on, and that's okay. I think what we can all say and agree with in prayer is that we should all be ready for your return at any time. We should be faithful to serve you, to spread the gospel, to love your church, to dig into your word, and uh, to eagerly anticipate your return. We can all do that. No, no matter what eschatological view we land on, we can all do that. I pray that we would to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.